This is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. The Seraphic Saturday Podcast is produced by Alexis Ame and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. My name is Thomas McCarger, and this is a Seraphic Fire Media Production. Hello, and welcome to the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. My name is Patrick Quigley, and I'll be your host today as we explore the music and legacy of the 12th century composer, visionary, abbess, philosopher, theologian, and polymath Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen was born to a noble family 923 years ago in the year 1098 and began to experience religious visions as a young child. When she was eight years old, her family dedicated her to a nearby monastery, committing Hildegard to a life of religious contemplation. At the age of 14, she was enclosed, literally bricked into a cell with the anchorite nun Jutta. For decades, as Jutta's student and companion, Hildegard lived physically isolated from the outside world. Her food was prepared by the monastic community and delivered via a small opening in her cell. She and Jutta similarly listened to daily office and mass through the wall of their enclosure, which abutted the monastery chapel. Anchorite nuns were seen by medieval populace as particularly wise, and Jutta imparted counsel and blessings to pilgrims through a window only large enough for speech. On Jutta's death in 1136, when Hildegard was 38, she was made magistra, or leader, of her monastic community and emerged from confinement. At the abbey where she and Jutta were enclosed, the nuns lived alongside a male monastic community of monks. Inspired by her visions, Hildegard founded a new abbey for her community of nuns at Rupertsburg, outside the town of Bingen, where the women could lead a free life on their own, away from the influence and control of the monks. In the 43 years of her monastic leadership, Hildegard would emerge as one of the leading thinkers of her age. She made significant contributions to philosophy, music, theology, and the natural sciences, and corresponded with kings and popes. Remarkable for a woman at the time, Hildegard preached in public from the pulpit and was widely recognized as an intellectual and spiritual force. Hildegard was canonized, or declared a saint, by the Catholic Church in 2012.
In June, Seraphic Fire releases its newest recording featuring Hildegard of Bingen's magnum musical opus, the Ordo Virtutum, variously translated as the play of the virtues or the rite of the virtues. The Ordo Virtutum is a large scale dramatic musical work portraying a wandering soul's struggle between the powers of good and evil. Completed sometime before 1151, the Ordo is a breathtaking combination of music and drama, pitting the heavenly, sweet-voiced company of virtues against the forces of evil, personified by the shouting, profane devil. Lasting more than an hour, the Ordo is longer than many romantic symphonies and shows highly sophisticated development of musical motives and themes that continues to awe the modern ear. Written for Hildegard's own community of nuns, the music of the Ordo and its characters were written for women Hildegard knew, led, and sang with daily. All but one of the characters are written for female performers, including Anima, the protagonist, and the virtues, led by their queen, Humility. The devil, the only male character in the work, cannot sing and is left to shout and taunt. The virtues eventually triumph over the devil, welcoming the penitent soul into their fold. In the following scene, Humility, queen of the virtues, orders her virtuous army to bind the devil with chains. The virtues, led by the high voice of victory, surround and capture the devil. In this audio excerpt from Seraphic Fire's upcoming recording, Humility is sung by mezzo-soprano Clara Osowski and Victory by soprano Rebecca Myers. The members of the Ordo's original 12th century cast were not professional musicians, and the score reflects an entire range of musical writing for the female voice. Some parts are high, others low. Some are extended in length, others fleetingly short. 
Each, though, was created for a specific member of Hildegard's convent and is an historical testament to both that person and that community. Regarding Ordo Virtutum, scholarship is certain of the author of both the music and the text, Hildegard von Bingen, saint and polymath. The musical community is similarly in agreement as to the pitches of the music, the order in which they occur, and the text that accompanies them. Finally, there is no doubt that the music of the Ordo was written for and contemporaneously performed by women. Beyond these attributes, however, the modern performer is left to studied guesswork to make many decisions which affect the performance, from the rhythm of the individual notes to the 12th century German Rhineland pronunciation of the Latin words. In pursuit of an informed interpretation, Seraphic Fire was guided by the renowned Hildegard scholar, Dr. Honey McConey, author of the 2018 biography, Hildegard of Bingen, and professor of musicology at the Eastman School of Music and the University of Rochester. I had a chance to sit down with Dr. McConey to talk to her about Hildegard, her music, and the many questions surrounding this fantastic piece of music. Welcome, honey, how are you doing today? I'm so happy to be here, Patrick. It's lovely to see you again. As you know, I love talking about Hildegard, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I want to tell our audience here today that I am an avid reader. I usually am reading somewhere between three and six books at the same time. Thank goodness for the iPad. But I have Honey's book, Hildegard of Bingen, which I read almost all the way through the day that it came in the mail. And the reason is because that Honey is a great writer and a great scholar, but she gets that humans are interested in this music who are perhaps not have their expertise in an obscure place, but she writes in a way, and particularly in this book about Hildegard, that reaches out to the reader and brings you along as if you're a companion. Hildegard is a remarkable, remarkable person. And she lived during the 12th century. Tell us a little bit about what was going on around her as she was beginning to become this immense force in music and science and theology during her own time? Probably a lot of people know her first as a composer because they hear her, her music, but that wasn't how she was first known during her life. She was someone who saw visions and at some point started writing them down. So she's, first of all, a religious person, and she's writing at a time of Europe in the 12th century is... In theory, everyone is a Roman Catholic at the time, but there's still very different interpretations of what that means and what sort of theological questions you should be answering. And she's writing at a time of a lot of conflict. There's conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. There's what's called a papal schism. I mean, normally when the Pope dies, the Cardinals get together in Rome and they elect a new Pope. Well, in the 12th century, Frederick Barbarossa, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, didn't like the Pope that the Romans elected, so he had his own Pope. There were more than one Pope. We might think of the Middle Ages, oh, it's a very simple time, and there's never a time in the history that there isn't conflict and crisis and so on and so forth. And she's part of all of that. Once she starts becoming known to the world, she dives in by writing letters to authority figures, and they write to her for advice and so on and so forth. So she's very deeply connected with everything that's going on in the world at the time. Let's talk a little bit about the Ordo now. And the first time that you got in contact with the music of Hildegard was through the Ordo in about 1982. How did that happen? Well, there was a Hildegard scholar named Kent Kraft, who was a visiting professor, and he wanted to put on a production of Ordo Virtutum. 
I had never heard of Hildegard because in 1982, she was not in any music history textbook. Back then, people didn't even know that much about women composers like Clara Schumann or Fanny Mendelssohn. It's hard to remember that long ago because now they're part of all history surveys and people hear their music all the time and you commission music from women composers. The world was different 40 years ago. Um, so that was a big, who is this person? People had known about her as a theologian for a very, very long time, but the music really started taking off in the 1980s. In the 1980s, this is sort of, you're at Harvard at this point in Boston, which is sort of the seat of where early music as the way we think of it now, historically in form performance. That was a particularly exciting time in music making. Can you tell us just a little bit about what was going on then and how you got to the point that you could perform this? At that time, there was one edition that had been published in 1969, and it was in what we call modern chant notation that I know you're familiar with. It's meant to look like the type of notation that was used for plain chant in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. It's what we call square notation. We just went ahead and performed those one note after another. And then when I started my first job, which was a few years later, and wanted to start performing music by women composers, at that point, there were a few other additions, and they used what are called stemless note heads. You know, they're just little blobs. But I started getting curious about what does the original notation look like? I joke to my students, it's like you took a little baby chick fresh hatched out of an eggshell and you put its feet in a pot of ink and then you let it walk over staff paper. That's what this music looks like. So it looks like little chicken scratch on a staff. So I started digging at, well, how do you perform this? And that was when I found out that, you know what? We don't know how you perform this. Some of these notes are very straightforward. This is this pitch, this is that pitch but there are a whole bunch of things that are called ornamental nooms. And we know the noom indicates some kind of special thing you're doing at this point, but we don't know exactly what it is. So, okay, this is a quilisma. How are we going to treat the quilisma? No one knows, we simply don't know. One of the things I like about early music, and I think probably you do as well, is there's a lot of freedom for the performer. When you perform the Brahms Requiem, you've got a pretty good sense of what the composer wants. But with early music, we don't have that connection. When you did 1610 Vespers, for example, you had to make a lot of decisions. I mean, Monteverdi gave you a bunch of information, but a lot of the other stuff you had to decide. As you get further and further before the big C classical period, what we have to perform from is less and less definite. Though people seem to from a scholarly standpoint, become more and more passionate that the way that they have discovered. And I want to share this story with, with our listeners, which is that when I started this, I think I talked to Honey maybe six or seven months before we began. And every moment of the conversation that I had with Honey, I realized how much I didn't know about this music. But I also realized how much other people didn't know about this music. Hildegard was someone who was living in a relatively conformist time, but she was the original nonconformist. Can you tell us a little bit about what Hildegard was like personally? What would it have been like to be around Hildegard? Probably very, very interesting. She was a big one for obedience. As much as she had lots of really interesting things going on at her convent, She's a Benedictine nun, and when you become a nun, one of the vows you take is of obedience. But I think that she, she was someone who didn't give up. Maybe that's one way of describing her. And I think that people who are nonconformists just have to keep following their own path. Now, one thing that made it much easier for her was 
she always thought this is the Holy Spirit speaking through me. Now, the Holy Spirit speaking through her often seemed to want to do things that were not normal for other people at the time. I mean, for example, one thing she did was to start going out in the world and preaching. Believe me, women did not do that. I think it was the sense of her sense that she was divinely inspired, but I think it was also, darn it, she just wasn't going to give up. In some ways, the most radical thing about Hildegard is that we know who she is. And she did some of that documentation. Talk to us about how we know that Hildegard exists. That's a great observation that she's a named composer. That is extremely unusual for this time. Part of this has to do with the fact that she was so spectacular and she was so gifted in so many different things that even while she was alive, people said, boy, clearly we have a saint during her lifetime, people started writing a biography about her, what we call a saint's vita. There's a fantastic, huge manuscript called the Riesen Codex, the Giant Codex. The intention was precisely, let's pull her music together. Let's get Ordo Virtutum here. Let's get the, the, all her theological tracks together. Let's keep all this documented because she's so, so special. But you're right, very, very unusual for this time. And we're so grateful we have this uh, because otherwise we wouldn't necessarily know this is all music by the same person, for example. And you talked about her being talked about as a saint during her lifetime. I think it's probably necessary to note that she was not canonized until the 21st century. So they started the canonization process and things move slowly in the Middle Ages. And in Rome, they said, we need more information. So they sent it back, and then they didn't send them the revised version. But people celebrated her as her saint anyway. But it wasn't until the 21st century that Pope Benedict said, she is a saint. So it's an interesting process that took, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries. Did she write continuously into her 80s? She was very long-lived as well. Yeah, she lives to, to be 81, which is incredible for someone who's as ill as she is. But one thing that she misses is because she's a celibate nun, there's no childbirth. And childbirth, very demanding. And, and back then, when people had 10 children and so on and so forth, she's saved from those health crises. She has her own separate ones. It's a little difficult to tell exactly. In fact, it's very difficult to tell exactly when different things were written. But we do think there's some pieces that seem to be from probably fairly late in her life. Hildegard's contribution to the natural sciences is pretty significant. What are some of the other major contributions that she's made to the world? Well, you're right. She's a very important scientific writer for this time. Even if she'd never written any theology, never written any music, she would be historically important for being one of the first people to write about uh, medicine and healing. She has two big books about this. One is sort of a description of the natural world divided into nine books. And then there's another book about illnesses and how to cure them. And again, dealing with, you know, using plants and various things. You know, this is the 12th century. So all of these things are, in a sense, folk medicine. She's probably writing down the latest and most up-to-date remedies for the time. Now, some of them are, are very weird. For example, if you have jaundice, you're supposed to take a bat, you know, and stun it and then tie it to your body and then when it expires, you'll be cured from jaundice. I mean, you know, come on. But one of the things about Hildegard, she, in, her, in her medical writing, she's really big on moderation. And for example, in talking about eating, she says, you know, you only need two meals a day. And, you know, you can eat, you don't need meat all the time. She's doing a type of diet in a sense that we now recognize as, hey, that's pretty healthy. 
Honey, can you tell us your favorite Hildegard story? Like of all the things that you know her better than most anyone on this earth right now. Tell us what's your favorite Hildegard story. Can I give two? Sure. (laughs) They're both connected to music, which is not surprising. One is her nuns talk about how she used to wander through the monastery singing one of her songs to herself, O Fyrga Actia Dema, which is a great, great, fantastic sequence that she wrote. So I just love this idea of Hildegard just wandering around singing by herself. But the other one is very close to the end of her life. A man who'd been excommunicated from the Catholic Church came to her and was absolved of his sins. And then he died. He was ill. So she buried him. In the Catholic Church, if you're excommunicated, you're not supposed to be buried in consecrated ground. Well, the church hierarchy said, no, you did a bad thing. You know, he should not have been buried in consecrated ground. And they placed what's called an interdict on her convent. And an interdict basically says, you can't celebrate mass and the offices that we talked about beforehand by singing. You have to basically speak them silently or read them out loud. She goes on this letter writing campaign and she lays out basically her philosophy of music. And she says how music is the divine speaking to us. It's what's happening in heaven. And you know who really hates music? The devil hates music. The devil loves it when people aren't singing. Do you really want to align yourselves with the devil by not letting us sing? You're basically putting yourselves on the side of the devil. And it goes back to Order Fertutum because the only person who doesn't get to sing is the devil. They basically say, okay, we were wrong. We'll lift the interdict. And then six months later, she dies. But at least she died happy and hearing music. I guess that's my favorite Hildegard story. We just heard the opening sequence from Hildegard of Bingen's Ordo Virtutum. Luthien Brackett portrayed the role of Anima, and the Choir of Virtues was sung by the women of Seraphic Fire. Recently, mezzo-soprano Amanda Kreider was able to reunite with members of Seraphic Fire's recording of the Ordo Virtutum to discuss Hildegard's music and recording her major work. Okay, welcome. My name is Amanda Kreider, and I am an alto with Seraphic Fire. 
I've been singing with the ensemble for the last 10 years, and I have to say this was one of the most fulfilling projects to record Hildegard von Bingen's Ordo Virtutum with this amazing group of women. I'm joined by some of my wonderful colleagues today. First, we have Rebecca Myers, soprano. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Arwen Myers, also soprano, not related to Rebecca. Hi, how are you? Good. Sarah Gutenberg, soprano. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Clara Ozowski, alto. Hi, Amanda. Finally, Luthien Brackett, alto. Hi, Luthien. Hi, Amanda. It's lovely to be here. I'm so happy to get to talk to you all about this incredible experience we all had together. If you wanted to share some of your favorite musical moments from the piece. When all of us get to sing in unison. Oftentimes I've done Hildegard with two, three other women. But how many did we have on stage? <laughs> it felt like 500 at one point. Um, I thought that was extremely, extremely powerful. Just all of us together doing the same thing. Yes, as I was thinking about this this morning, I thought the unison singing was kind of like walking a tightrope all together, holding hands. Super, super exhilarating after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Luthien, what were some of your favorite moments? There is one moment that is my absolute favorite, and that is Rebecca Meyer's incredible, victorious solo at the end of the piece. Such a wonderful sort of ecstatic climax to the piece, and it has such exuberance and such joy and such radiance. It's one of those moments that made me so aware of how complex and sophisticated and beautiful monody can sound. That's so wonderful, Luthien, and I love the word you used, radiance. Rebecca, do you have any memories from the recording process that you'd like to share with us? You know, when you're singing a normal choir piece, if you make a mistake, it's kind of easy to hide a little bit. <laughs> Sometimes it's not audible. When you're singing one line of chant, if your vowel doesn't match the, you know, the other 16 people, everything sticks out. There's just nowhere to hide. And it was very challenging. It was one of the more challenging recording sessions I've been a part of. I know that this was an incredibly memorable experience for all of us for many reasons, but one was the touring to go make the recording during a snowstorm and getting stranded together in Minneapolis, which was not our destination. And I think when we landed in Minneapolis, the temperature was negative four. After leaving Miami, where it was probably 80 degrees when we left, Maybe one of you can explain that experience a little further for us. Well, one of my all-time gigging highlights was hanging out at an Applebee's that was attached to this hotel. That was an unexpectedly delightful evening. Um, a lot of it kind of blurs together. I don't know about you guys, but I do remember getting to the hall something like an hour before the performance was supposed to start. The like absolute shift from two days of airports and airport hotels to singing Hildegard immediately after we arrived was so, so weird and really hard and really delightful, kind of. It was a, a pretty special 48 hours. But music prevailed and we made it to Goshen. Luthien, um, it was an incredible hall to sing in. 
and I'd love to hear your experiences on the tour and also during the recording sessions. And you had the largest role in this piece. Patrick had made the decision that he wanted me to, to mostly not sing with the ensemble until the very end of the piece. So I had the privilege of listening to you ladies singing together. And my hat is off to you because that recording sessions are always a little bit stressful. And at least in my case, I'm always holding myself a little bit tightly and it's mentally exhausting and it's physically exhausting. And particularly when you have to create this beautiful unison for all of that time, I can only imagine by the end of it, how exhausting it must have been. That hall was absolutely incredible. Made probably the best hall I've ever had the privilege of singing in. To say Hildegard von Bingen was ahead of her time is like the biggest understatement ever, considering she wrote this piece over 900 years ago. I wanted to know from each of you, what made this project so meaningful? This project was extremely meaningful to me just by doing Hildegard in a way that made it feel so contemporary to all of us. Oftentimes we have, we do chant, you know, it's on meditative CDs and it's considered background. There's a different purpose to it if it's a filler in between other pieces in a program. But to have this so specifically done the way it was designed, getting all of us women in a room together, a way to not only empower us as individuals, but as, as a way to show what music is capable of even though it was written X number of years ago. The contemporary feelings uh, do transcend the amount of time. Sarah, how about you? What made this project so meaningful? To do a full professional recording with just women was so amazing. It was just a different experience because we all sing differently and yet the same and were able to just be so supportive of each other. And I kind of think that's that's kind of what this piece has done for every group of women that that have sung it before, whether it was 900 years ago or a group of four women singing it in the 1980s at Trinity Wall Street or whatever. This piece has that capability to really just bring a group of women together and make some really beautiful music. And it was a really good thing. Luthien, how about you? You know, I've been singing with Jurassic Fire for a long time and interacting with the audiences after performances is always so special. This was the first time I've had the sheer number of people that I had coming up to me after the performances saying, this is my favorite thing I've heard you do. Hildegard is my favorite. There was something so personally meaningful about this music, um, especially because I was slightly nervous and I wondered for the listener, would it be as as moving as it was for us performing it? And I think it was. Absolutely. And I remember that a couple of our followers from South Florida actually came to Goshen to hear our performance there. So that says how meaningful it is. I wanted to just uh, ask Arwen and Rebecca quickly if they had any other things to add, anything that was meaningful to you about the project. I think that there's something really special about singing music this old, singing something that's almost a millennium old. And there's this through line of performance that this piece is so ancient, at least compared to where we are today. It was written for a completely different time, but there's something that's so vital and something that's so relevant about it. And I don't think I expected that. It's kind of completely egoless music. Like it's a celebration of doing something together and being a part of something that's greater than yourself. 
there are these solo moments that are a celebration of how we're different, but most of it is us singing together. And I wasn't expecting uh, it to be as powerful as it was. Rebecca, how about you? Do you have anything you'd like to add? This experience like made me see the drama in a work like this, almost a modern day opera. I felt that we were able to get the text across in such a way. It really didn't feel like a background chant moment. It really was so interesting to see it evolve, both in my mind and like I think to the audience. Yes, there's a lot of drama in this music, uh, which I think was really successfully brought out by all of the different colors of the voices in our ensemble. One of my most memorable moments was celebrating in a small bar in Goshen after the recording session and Patrick Quigley going around to each and every one of us and celebrating all of our individuality and getting to celebrate together as a whole. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts today and I can't wait to see you in person soon. That was Amanda Kreider with Seraphic Fire musicians Rebecca Myers, Clara Osowski, Arwen Myers, Sarah Gutenberg, and Luthien Brackett. More information on this recording and this podcast can be found on our blog at seraphicfire.org slash blog. Well, that's our show for today. Special thanks goes to Carolyn and Frank Pichardo, who generously underwrote our new recording of the Ordo Virtutum. We also offer gratitude to Marty Davis and Alex Ritchie, whose underwriting support made our live performances of Hildegard's Ordo Virtutum possible. The Ordo Virtutum is an incredible work. We hope that you will enjoy it as much as we do. My name is Patrick Quigley, and this is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. <laughs>